Welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Jason Blevins of the Colorado Sun first broke the story about Backcountry.com's practices around trademark issues. So we talked to Jason about how this story got on his radar, the specifics of what Backcountry.com was doing, how common or uncommon these practices actually are, how Backcountry.com has subsequently responded, and what else needs to be done going forward. Now, two things here. First of all, five days before Jason and I recorded this, I did reach out to Backcountry.com CEO Jonathan Nielsen and invited him to come on the podcast to talk. I have not received a reply from him, but the good news here is that, as you will hear in this episode, I can say that two other individuals in the industry who have been impacted by Backcountry.com's practices have heard from Jonathan, and I think that that is a very good thing. We'll talk about one of those individuals and his business in this conversation. And then earlier today, I'm recording this introduction on Friday, November 15th. There was an announcement that Backcountry.com is partnering with the women's backcountry safety education group, Backcountry Babes. Now, these both appear to be positive developments, and we're looking forward to learning about more such positive developments. And with that, let's go ahead and get to my conversation with Jason Blevins. Well, Jason, how are you today and where are you today? I am doing well. I'm in Eagle, Colorado, in my house here and uh, getting ready to go skiing tomorrow. Vail's opening tomorrow. Oh, you're excited. going skiing tomorrow. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. After recent events, I think going skiing sounds real good. Doesn't it? Well, hey, I'm I'm happy to be talking with you and having this conversation. Um, you and I have been talking quite a bit lately, as it turns out. Lucky me. <laughs> well, I, I would I would argue lucky me, but um, anyway, I I think look, this has been a huge story. This has been a big deal, and um, you are the person that broke this story, and uh, I thought this is going to be a good chance for us to kind of, in a way stitch together some of the conversations uh, that you and I have been having, but I think also just to try to get a handle on where things are at now. Uh, we are recording this on Thursday evening, November 14th. I'm happy to just get the opportunity to kind of walk through how we got here, where we're currently at, and and that kind of thing, and, and bounce some questions off you. But maybe to start, Jason, let me ask you how this story that you broke in the Colorado Sun, how did this first get on your radar? Um, a friend of mine emailed, introduced me to uh, David Olilla, a fella up in Upper Peninsula there, and he had a backcountry ski that he was making called the Marquette Backcountry Ski, and he was locked in a federal lawsuit with backcountry.com over that mark. Um, I'm pretty sure that backcountry.com, uh, their trademark attorneys, IPLA trademark attorneys failed to do due diligence on David Olella because he is a tenacious man and he was not about to give up on this, uh, lawsuit. He's an entrepreneur. He has a number of different, uh, nonprofits designed to, uh, foster entrepreneurship in the upper peninsula of Michigan and, you know, really sort of tear down the barriers that uh, keep innovators from bringing cool products to market. But he had this sort of hybrid snowboard or snowshoe ski thing. And he was, you know, and he sent me this lawsuit and started talking to him. And um, he was sort of aware that maybe this company was going after other people. So I dove into um, PACER, you know, the federal database, court database, as well as USPTO filings, as well as their USPTO trial filings and found that this company for the past couple of years had been aggressively targeting um, small businesses like David O'Lilla's and really trying to uh, 
get that trademark. They wanted that name in a big way, and they were very aggressive about it. So sort of did a little digging, and there's quite a quite a bunch in there once you start digging through the documents a bit. And And so that was just a surprise, how much you started to find beneath this initial story about Marquette backcountry skis? Yeah. I mean, it was really just, you know, David had a, had a suspicion that he was going after more, that this company was targeting more people, but he, um, he didn't know for sure. Um, and so, you know, once I, I found all these other federal district court cases filed in California's Northern district, Southern district, Utah district, um, started calling those people and a few of them were willing to talk and then, you know, dove into the USPTO PTO filings and found other entrepreneurs and, you know, it really became evident that this company was not targeting anyone who had means, um, you know, talk to my buddies over at Backcountry Access and they're like, no, we're not getting a call from that guy. Um, but the one girl that owns the coffee company, the one girl that owns the, you know, Avalanche Education the dude that owns the you know outdoor shop, the blue jean maker, all these one-person companies, they seem to have been specifically targeted, which I found to be rather interesting approach for the company, backcountry.com. So then timeline on this. I mean, you you published this story. I it was October 31st. And I I I remember that because well it's I guess Halloween and I read the story that morning, and then a couple hours later, we recorded a Gear 30 podcast where I sort of did this like, listen, this is brand new on my radar, but if this stuff is really true, and I kind of gave my opinion on what I thought would be the the, the, the kind of obvious consequences of that. So we get that, and then it's, I think, another almost a week or exactly a week goes by that we kind of get the first statement from Jonathan Nielsen, the CEO of backcountry.com. Does that sound about right? Yes. You know, I originally wrote, there was, I I put another story in the whole um, mix and that, you know, I sort of wrote a follow-up story in November 4th or so on, uh, you know, just the social media backlash and the boycott and the Facebook page and the, the real kind of, you know, the way the w- response to the story pretty much. And I included more people in there that I'd known about that, you know, I'd been talking to. So there was a, there was an update in there before, um, before, you know, backcountry.com came forward and sort of, you know, apologized on November 6th or so. Yeah. And that's right. And by the way, obviously, I mean, it, that's a massive part of this story. So you come out with your piece and, there's this social media eruption and um, we're kind of waiting around. That's just growing like wildfire. And it was, I think it was November 6th that there's finally that statement from, from backcountry.com on that. Uh, I thought that statement was just very inadequate. And um, so I posted kind of a line by line response to that. And I think pretty interestingly, like less than 24 hours later or almost exactly 24 hours later, I first learned about it, you reporting a kind of second statement, which frankly I thought was much, much better, much more compelling, much more substantial. Um, do you want to talk about that? Um, sure. They came and talked to us and basically said that, or you know, I guess they, they reached out, Jonathan Nielsen, CEO, reached out to, I guess a number of media outlets on that Friday and, and said, you know, we're taking this a lot further than that initial um, apology. We are dropping the lawsuit against David O'Lilla, which was the only remaining lawsuit that nobody, that the, um, that people had not settled. Um, and they were hiring David O'Lilla to come on as a consultant. They were like partnering with his company in some way to sort of help market and sell that ski. Um, you know, maybe one of their co-branding sort of collaboration things. And uh, they were going to reach out to the 
you know, several dozen, if not more than 50 businesses that had been targeted over the past couple of years who had made some sort of settlement, um, small businesses, and they were going to reach out to every one of those and see what they could do to make this whole. But they stopped short of dropping the, I don't know, 50 plus petitions that they have filed in the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office that um, basically seeking to cancel dozens and dozens of trademarks by small businesses that use, use that word backcountry. Yeah. And it was on the one hand, you know, reading those, those next statements that came out on November, Friday, November 7th, I just personally, I was like, this actually sounds really good. This, this actually sounds like what should have been said on November 6th. And I realized these things can take time and maybe they were still pushing to be able to, you know, they needed confirmation or approval or something to be able to make the claims, you know, 24 hours later, I don't know. But I also was still a bit confused and wasn't personally ready to just declare like, sweet, everyone has now been made whole. I mean, it. it I thought it was a good and substantial thing that they put out, but I still wasn't quite ready to declare like, everybody's good now. I mean, I think we need, no, we need to wait for you know, them to follow through, you know, they have to know that we're watching this. I've, I've been in touch and it's been a week since uh, Jonathan Nielsen came out and said he'd be reaching out to everyone. So I'm kind of, you know, I spent this week casually touching base with everybody, making sure that, you know, 10, 12 people that I know who'd been, you know, sort of lost their brand, um, you know, making sure that they'd been contacted. Um, some have, some have not, some are waiting some are happy, some are not, some have heard and they, they don't feel like they're, they're there yet. But, you know, this is a week and I really would like to give this company, you know, time to follow through on its promise. But at the, at the same time, you know, this kind of thinking should have been done in 2018 and they should have just said, someone in that company, you know, should have said, hey, why are we targeting a woman who owns a avalanche education class. Why, why are we suing her in federal court? Why are we going after this one guy that started a blue jean company? You know, like the breakdown somewhere in this corporate decision-making structure is something if I was involved with backcountry.com, I would say, how the hell did this pass through every corner office and get rubber stamped for two years? In many ways, this isn't their they're maybe more sorry they got caught. Like, would they still be doing this if we hadn't written these, written these stories? I don't know, but I would argue yes. Probably safe, safe guess. Now, that said, I definitely also can imagine uh, a situation where um, TSG, uh, the parent company of Backcountry.com, was just moving forward with this and sort of dictating that this is how things were going. Again, I don't know that for sure, but that would not surprise me. So I'm I'm willing to give some some benefit of the doubt here when it comes to the actual backcountry.com employees. Um, they might not have liked this either. But I think until people like you broke this news and set off, well, again, I said there was something I was really proud of actually, the response by the outdoors community I view that as largely an appropriate response. And yes, were there some individuals apparently who were sounding off on customer service people at backcountry.com? If that was happening, no, that wasn't appropriate. Um, clearly that wasn't appropriate. But uh, I am proud that in this outdoors community, a lot of people rose up and just said, this isn't how we want this community to be operating. What I wrote in my initial piece was, even if everything that TSG and or backcountry.com was doing was legal, it clearly wasn't right. And I think everybody in the outdoors, or I should say most people in the outdoors community recognize that. And I'm happy to say that it looks like backcountry.com is realizing that. And again, I do think that some of these steps by Jonathan Nielsen in the statements and the like, and we'll talk about a couple other of these things that I just learned of literally this morning. I think those have been positive things. I think they're making, you know, they're making progress, but it is safe to say that they had, did not expect this sort of response. And maybe they're 
trademark attorney, John Kim, who went after all these companies, you know, he maybe has experience in other industries, but he really didn't know what was happening when he started targeting small businesses in the outdoor community because small businesses in the outdoor community make up the backbone of this industry. They are the innovators. They are the reason this industry is so cool and passionate and fun to, you know, participate in and be a part of. And, you know, it's pretty, I, I can't think there's another industry that rallies around its own, like the one, like the outdoor industry that just did in the past couple of weeks. That was pretty impressive. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about was there certainly were some individuals who wanted to make the argument that, look, all this ire that's being directed at backcountry.com is totally misplaced, that backcountry had no choice but to go and look to aggressively enforce this trademark of theirs and that we shouldn't be upset with backcountry acting this way. Uh, and in fact, all this ire is misplaced. It should be saved for the system itself that I guess the argument goes effectively is forcing backcountry to act in this fashion. I'd like to hear you kind of speak to that and what maybe you think is they got right about that or what you think they did not get right about that. Well, all right, so trademark law, and I'm no trademark lawyer, but boy, have I taken a crash course in the past couple of weeks. Um, so trademark law, they really, in order to protect your mark, you need to enforce your mark. If you're not out there saying, hey, USPTO, this person just took the name of my company and they're making the same ski, like... That's not fair. Please take a look at that. Um, you know that it's important. Policing your mark is an important part of owning your mark. It's your responsibility and obligation to protect a mark, and that that is very true. The problem with the backcountry scenario here is that that company only has three service marks. They do not have product marks. They have marks for backcountry.com as an online retail store. So when they go after a blue jean maker, when they go after a coffee maker, when they go after avalanche education maker saying you're, they're violating your marks, those people have a really good legal argument to be like, no, we're not violating your mark. And if they'd stood up and fought, um, chances are pretty good, according to the lawyers I spoke with, that they backcountry.com did not have the legal standing to make those. They were enforcing a mark they wanted. So that's, that's a big difference. Like you hear, you know, people like, oh, Patagonia does this. Oh, the North Face does this. Those companies have hundreds of product marks, hundreds. And they do go after companies that make a product that could possibly be, you know, misinterpreted as, as, as their mark. You know, it's part of their obligation for that mark. Backcountry.com has three service marks, with a really, it's got a weak mark when it's a descriptor. So it's really dependent on the second part of the word. It's not just backcountry, it's the dot com, which is the, you know, sort of the essence of their mark. Um, so, you know, seeing those guys go after, you know, people with product marks who had a product mark registered and awarded by the US Patent and Trademark Office saying, we want that mark. We've, we have an application for that mark that we filed last year, and we want it. So, yeah, we're, we're going to make clothes now. So, yeah, the one that you were awarded before we decided to make clothes, yeah, we're going to contest that. And if, if you, and their tactic was if you objected to the USPTO filing or didn't respond, then they would file a federal lawsuit. And the federal lawsuit suspends the USPTO hearing and the federal lawsuits were really threatening. Like, we are going to take three times everything you've ever earned. You know, when you say that to, you know, a person who did a Kickstarter for this or that, or, you know, that's what they told David Alilla. They wanted three times all his revenues for the past 10 years, plus punitive measures to punish him and make sure he never does it again. And now, you know, they, like I said earlier, they definitely didn't know who they were getting into with David Olilla. Really should have Googled that guy before they sued him. Um, but, uh, you know, so 
you know, that suspends the USPTO filing. So then you go through federal court and that's freaking terrifying as an entrepreneur to get served. You're served by the sheriff. You know, that you're served papers of, for a federal lawsuit. You know, it's scary. And everybody, you know, backed off of that except for one. And thank goodness he did. Because if he had, if he just folded, this could have just continued and, yeah, kept going and just been hidden in the ether. But by the way, I do want to say David Olilla actually emailed me right after we aired our gear 30 conversation it it actually went live i think the next day november 1st you know and he just said hey thank you for that and i'd be happy to talk to you i wrote him back but i i have not heard back from him and in the in the interim i mean we have all learned that you know he did get what sounds like a really good response from backcountry.com we're hearing that he is now correct me if I've got the facts wrong here, either employed by backcountry or is going to be doing some bit of consulting or an advisory role with them. They're investing, I think, in two of his, these kind of entrepreneurial startup uh, companies. So anyway, just for the record, David did reach out to me after the Gear 30 episode. Subsequently, I did. I invited him actually in this conversation that you and I are having now, and I haven't heard back. And, and I'm totally fine with that, by the way. He's either busy or now doesn't feel like um, having a conversation about some of this. And again, as far as I'm concerned, either of those scenarios I'm good with. And it does seem like one of those cases, like in that particular case, I think Backcountry did a good thing, it seems. Uh, I sure hope so. Um, but in terms of now looking to like, is again, this is what could have been done in the first place, right? Like, let's let's reach out, let's figure out how we can make this good for for each other. And um, again, I'm glad that he stood up, and I'm glad right now that it seems like this is turning into be a, a a positive. I think. Yeah, and Jonathan Nielsen specifically said the deal he reached with David is going to be a model for the deals that he will pursue with companies that um, you know they targeted in the past so and and jason if i may another story here i actually had a conversation yesterday afternoon with tyson who is the owner of well what was backcountry pursuit uh in boise idaho and they were one of the first companies that backcountry.com i think reached out to to talk about saying, hey, you kind of need to step off our corner, as it were. And if I've got the details of this correct, I believe Tyson said we were not served a lawsuit, but they were told that if they did not do a rebrand, there could be consequences to this. And so Tyson did rebrand Philosophy Pursuit to Boise Gear Collective. And I had a really interesting 45-minute long conversation with Tyson yesterday where he was talking about it. I think it's important to say, truly, at no point in the conversation was Tyson like, screw those guys, screw that big online retailer. In fact, I was a bit surprised that as, as the owner of a local gear shop, Tyson very much was like, listen, I can't carry everything. I can't sell everything. I think there's actually a place out there for a large online retailer. His whole takeaway was he just was saying, you know, we we really got we really got hurt by that rebrand and it was very costly and very expensive. And he said, "Listen, I just I'm actually just kind of surprised that I haven't heard yet from Jonathan Nielsen and I'm hoping that I do." And he's like and again, to Tyson's credit, I think, he's like, I actually have a lot of ideas about ways that Backcountry.com and my shop, Boise Gear Collective, could kind of work together. And he's like, I'd love to have that conversation with Jonathan. So that was where things left when I got off the phone with Tyson yesterday. This morning, I got an email from Tyson saying, hey, just so you know, I did just get an email from Jonathan Nielsen. And in fact, Jonathan says he wants to come to Boise to sit down with me to talk about some of these things. And, you know, so honestly, 
credit where credit is due, I really applaud uh, Jonathan for doing that. Um, Tyson was really happy about it. I, you know, this meeting hasn't happened yet, but I think again, this is what could have been done initially. You know, we don't need to we don't need to remind everybody it's not the way it was done, but I think it's really a positive thing. And and thing I'm really excited about, whether whatever I think of it, Tyson really views this as a positive thing. And um, again, credit where credit is due. I think that was a really good email for Nielsen to send. And I think him going to Boise is a, a very cool another step here. And you know, I'm trying to think of what the name of the Evo program is. They have a they have retail partners. You know, Evo is obviously very yeah, yeah. large. La, F- La Familia. Yeah, La Familia. Okay, yeah. I mean, that's and you know, you go into some of these stores and. They actually have a terminal for you to order all your stuff on evo.com and then the shop will mount your skis, assemble your bike. And, you know, the idea is that these local shops become sort of the, you know, the tuning and service. And, you know, they really, you know, they offer backcountry clinics and the avalanche awareness and all the, you know, rallying spots for the community, whereas the actual gear, and it's worked out really well. Like from what I understand, La Familia is a, a pretty strong program and those retailers are pretty stoked. So, that's promising out there at that Boise Boise shop, Tyson shop. I've been in touch with Tyson as well. And, um, you know, he, the emails that you, these companies got from the IPLA attorneys were vicious, <laughs> just straight up, just so cold, so hard, so threatening, you know, and it's like they knew they're dealing with, you know, folks who they don't know trademark law, you know, don't have a lot of means to pick a fight with a big company. And, you know, I've, I have those emails from, to several of the, these, you know, single employee type businesses and they're, they are not respectful and they are not amicable. <laughs> I'll say that, <laughs> you know, it was an aggressive tactic, you know, and, and apparently, you know, this whole trademark business is, there's a lot of gray area. And when a company, does want a mark and somebody else has it, it is not uncommon for someone to go throw some muscle around, you know, and you say, hey, you know, I am expanding my business. The, you know, classic cases, Apple computers and Apple music. It's this classic thing, Apple versus the Beatles. It's the classic trademark definition of enforcing a mark you want. Those two wrangled for 35 years because Apple Core was the company that held all the Beatles music. And Apple Computers, initially in the 1970s, said, we're never getting into the music business. Yeah, we're fine. We're fine. We're, we're going to operate in two different realms. And then, obviously, everybody knows that changed. And, you know, it took them 30 years of lawsuits to finally reach a deal. So it's not uncommon for, you know, big companies to come say, hey, changing my business model. I want that mark. Throw some elbows. But I think what surprised these trademark guys is that works in a lot of industries, but not in the outdoor industry, apparently. And, you know, again, I I think a couple of things here and like nuance can be difficult. Again, I wrote a very strong response to what I, what I, in my opinion, wasn't an inadequate first initial statement by backcountry. But given that we hadn't heard anything in a week, I was like, is this all we're going to get? And that initial statement didn't signal like, hang on, there's more to come here, right? And I, so I said my piece. That said, I do end that with like, the section's called going forward. So look, one of the things here, none of us are perfect and no one I don't think is expecting absolute perfection out of any company but that's not, I don't think, what we're dealing with here, right? It's like we were a far cry from how we want to, I think, be treating others or be treated. And that's where I think it's like, cool, this happened. It was not good. It was vicious. A lot of people were affected um, by some vicious tactics. Now, let's, that's been established now it's time to look at how do we move forward? Can we be, you know, can we move forward? We've certainly seen some comments online from people who are like, I'm sorry, I don't care what backcountry does. 
going forward, they've lost my business forever. And it's like, okay, I, I think that's a fair point. I also think it's fair for some people to be like, it all now absolutely comes down to the response. And I think one of the best things they did was fire that law firm. A hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred percent. You know, we're like, we actually unleashed the hounds of hell, <laughs> you know, on, on, uh, you know, innocent businesses. And we should not have done that. And the first thing we're doing is we're dropping that firm. That definitely resonated with me in a big way. Yeah. If they'd kept him on, you know, if they'd kept those attorneys on with IPLA, you know, and there was like, just talk to anyone who's had any interaction with those attorneys and there's, they have a very clear take on what those, how those people operate. And they operate in a way that's, maybe that's the way it rolls, you know, in trademark law. Maybe this. I'm not a trademark guy, who knows? But that's not how you roll in the outdoors. It's just not. You bring that kind of hubris into the backcountry or into anything that you do when you're playing outside, you're not going to be around for long. Let me ask you, though, as somebody who's covered the outdoor industry for, what is it, approximately a zillion years now, I think. <laughs> Come on, I'm not that old. I think a zillion. Let me ask, have you seen other instances that sort of reminded you of this um, or does this truly feel, at least on a level of scale or scope or something, like a different thing from what you've witnessed over the last however many years? Uh, you know, I mean, an obvious comparison is the way the industry galvanized around public lands in Utah and took the whole of the retailer show out of town. Um, you know, this this industry is, is, in the past, say, five years, has really found... It's muscle, you know, it's moved from the kids table to the grown-ups table. It is sitting with oil and gas and timber and grazing and making, you know, influencing policy on public lands. It's an economic force. We got the GDP, you know, Bureau of Economic Analysis now, you know, measuring recreation. This this industry is really feeling its muscle as an economic, political, social force. Um, so, you know, I think it... it it started to realize its capabilities and power uh, with the Utah move, you know, when, you know, it's pretty, pretty galvanizing when you see, you know, Bears Ears and, and Escalante threatened like that, public lands threatened, um, you know, that's, it's starting to really feel its own. And this is another example of that, I think, just a progression of this industry saying, hey, you know, we can defend our own, we can fight for policy, we can move, you know, move the needle. Whereas in the past we were, you know, a thousand voices screaming in the woods, you know, motorcycle, fish, hunt, ski, you know, everybody's all different and they all had their own thing. And now that everybody's kind of coming together with this sort of unified approach to something, you know, who knows if it can really be controlled. This was obviously just a, a groundswell that, you know, happened, you know, wasn't orchestrated in any sense, but, you know, I think this industry's got some juice and it, it, if it wants to really start making an impact and swaying economies and influencing rural economic development and public lands and all the other important issues where it plays or realms where it plays, it can really, it can. And this is an example of that. The other thing that I find really exciting and encouraging uh, is that Again, I I think the response to backcountry.com was appropriate by the community. And now we're in a position where I think many of us, I'm not trying to speak for all of us, but many of us are like, cool, let's start taking backcountry legitimate steps here to make amends. Let's see what you do with this. But I think the other really good thing here is an example was just served to the rest of the industry. And if this then is going to keep other big companies or small companies or whomever from just saying that the way that we operate around here is to send vicious lawsuit notices to other companies, I think everybody is going to think twice and has to now. 
right? And I think that's a really positive thing. This isn't how business needs to be conducted. It just isn't. And we don't need to accept that that's the way that, that things have to be done. The other thing to say is, obviously, I think many of us, hopefully the vast majority of us, do believe in trademark protection. What we don't believe in is frivolous claims or the kind of stuff that you've already detailed well in this conversation about going erroneously after companies. So yes, should companies be able to legitimately protect trademarks? Yes. Might we hopefully now be in a situation where when there is a bit of an issue or something, companies reach out and conduct themselves in a bit of a different way? I'd sure like to think so. And I, and I actually kind of think it's safe to assume there will be a new way of conducting business on this front. I don't know if you agree with that. Um, you know, only time will tell. But you know, this, this should certainly give every CEO of a major outdoor company something to look at. You know, like, uh, you know, I would, if I owned, you know, a VF Corp or, or something like that, I'd make sure that, you know, my leaders were aware of this and, you know, say, you know, let's, let's watch our steps here. Like, we don't want to be a bully. We, this is a, you know, we're all playing in a pretty small sandbox out here. You know, it's, this industry is, while influential, you know, it's not, you know, groundbreaking, but I think we can play together. And I think that's the lesson that it's all always going to have to be. If we're all about the outdoors and playing, we need to acknowledge that just because someone, it's a big company or a little company, we need to treat each other like, you know, humans and just play nice. Yeah. And, and just one other example here for the record, if there's some new company out there that's like, Oh, cool turns out it's we're in a culture now where big companies look bad if they're coming after small companies. So let's go ahead and start tomorrow, you know, Jason, me and you, an apparel company called Da North Face. It's like, well, no, that actually makes us shitty. You know, it's like that shouldn't be tolerated either. I, I guess I say that just because like this really can go both ways. And I think that, frankly, I think that we have a community that's smart enough to recognize that if there's an instance like that, it's like, sorry, new tiny startup, you're in the wrong here, you know? And it's like, we, we can do this. It, we don't, it's not just one direction, right? I mean, I don't think we're that dumb. I hope we're not. And we can legitimately kind of size up these instances and say, you know, sorry, you're, you tiny company would be in the wrong in this case. You big company might be in the wrong in that case. In either case, you know, this stuff should be able to be solved or the first step should be through conversation. And if things have to legitimately escalate beyond that, then okay, then that's the way it goes. But we don't start by breaking out the cannons. Yeah, exactly. You don't start with the nuclear weapons. And it's important to note that all the people that were targeted had secured trademarks. They had registered trademarks for that word, whereas backcountry.com did not. So, you know, like, like I said, it's not unheard of for a company to go do that, but you know, that's an important distinction to make. This was not a company enforcing its existing trademark. It was enforcing trademarks for products that it wanted. I think sometimes that gets lost in the, in the mix there. Well, here's to here's to hoping that amends are made and that we this is an opportunity. I mean, I think for any company when you have a rather royal screw up like this, the good thing is there's an opportunity to make amends and and come out better. And I do think that that's actually a potential path here. I think that means we need to just now see what the follow through and the execution looks like. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is, I'm waiting. Like I said, I want this company to follow through. I want to hear from people who are made whole. Um, even if they're not made whole, I want them to say, I feel respected. I feel a lot better than I did, you know, before I was, you know, sort of attacked here. Um, you know, a lot of these people signed NDAs and they're not able to talk. A lot of them signed agreements that they would never, ever move beyond 
you know, this one thing, um, you know, and they, they did so under duress and, you know, will they, will the guy that makes blue jeans be able to make a t-shirt at some point or make a hat or something like that? Like, is he going to be able to do that? Is he going to be able to get his brand back? Um, I don't know. You know, like I said, I want to wait and I want to see this thing unfold before I dive back in. You know, I'm not planning any stories right now, but there, there will be a follow-up story. Um, whether it's in a few weeks, whether it's next week, who knows, but you know, I'm, I'm watching it and I really, I really want this to be a good story. I want people to, you know, look back on this and say, wow, look at the lessons we learned from backcountry. And I want Jonathan Nielsen to say, well, look the lessons I learned, you know, our company is stronger and richer because of we've been through this fire and, um, you know, that's sort of the hope, right? Let's talk a little bit about your story. And I kind of want to talk about that and kind of, I don't know, the state of media today. You, I think, are known by a whole lot of people as a writer who was at the Denver Post for years. Um, you are now at a publication called The Colorado Sun. Do you mind talking a bit about your time at the Denver Post and what led to this transition to the Colorado Sun? Sure. Um, I started at the Denver Post in 1996. I was a, a graduate student at CUJ school. Um, I'd done four years of ski bumming in Vail and um, decided I was going to get my life together. And I got an internship out of this graduate program at the Denver Post and just sort of weaseled my way in the back door there. And I hung around for 21 years at that paper, worked, uh, you know, state desk, business desk, national desk, um, and, and sort of really settled into um, the ski outdoor beat there in the final 10, 15 years, worked in sports, went to Olympics, Winter Olympics, um, you know, covered a bunch of those. And really, I love that paper. I was going to go down with the ship. It was, a, it was an incredible job. It's the dream job. It's the greatest job I ever had. Um, and then this hedge fund took over and man, they were just so brutal with what their plan was. They moved the whole paper out of uh, the building we were in, moved us to a printing press, kept cutting staff brutally. You know, we'd miss a projection or something and they'd say, cut, cut, cut. And, you know, at the high point, they were, we had 350 people in the newsroom and at the low point we had... 80 and this message came down from this kid that runs this hedge phone who's never had been anywhere in a newsroom had never doesn't know newspaper and for anything and you know he's like a child and some young guy and he uh demanded that we cut 30 jobs from the 80 we had there and i just couldn't deal with it i sort of sat there for a night or two after that edict came down and saw everybody around me just so distraught, you know, we're, we're it'd be, it'd, the whole idea that we were trimming flesh was now we were amputating limbs and that paper just couldn't be what it once was. And it, I, I realized that I could no longer reconcile the fact that I worked so hard for such an asshat, like just, a, just not a good person. And I had to sit there and all my labors were going to him for some number and couldn't do it. And I sent out a, uh, a rather resonant um, tweet that I was leaving the paper. Uh, and I didn't know where I was going, didn't know what I was doing, but I just had to get out. And um, after 21 years, it was a really hard decision. Still ranks as one of the most difficult things I've ever done. Um, and turns out it was one of the smartest things I've ever done. I'm pretty proud of uh, uh, what happened afterwards. We... It, number of folks there was a little revolt at the Denver Post and 10 people jumped out and we started our own thing called the Colorado Sun this was after I had left um, this movement sort of started the Chuck Plunkett um, the real hero of the whole story um, he was the editorial page director and when some people were on vacation he published an entire editorial section just decimating the hedge fund that owns the paper and really criticizing them, urging them to sell rather than just 
keep chopping it because it, it it's evident that the plan for that business is to burn it down, heat yourself with the bones of the newspaper, and then walk away from the ashes. So we started the Colorado Sun um, last April 2018. Uh, uh, published our first story September 2018 so we just sort of had an uh, one year anniversary and we are completely subscription based um, we are a public benefit corp and we are journalists owned by journalism you know owned by journalists who who do nothing but write every dollar that we raise from our five dollar a month subscription goes to journalism and we are hoping to sort of redefine the model for community journalism and community you know newspaper and we got deals with all sorts of print newspapers so we're in the we're in print on a daily basis around the state and we're sort of pursuing the long form investigative narrative type journalism that uh that is lacking in a lot of these um hedge fund owned newspapers these days and it's it turns out to be the greatest job i've had 2.0 <laughs> it's been pretty fun man it's a good gig so help me on the timeline when did you resign from the Denver Post? I think it was April 2018. April 2018. So, and then there had been no conversations before that about with you and say 10 others, let's, let's start no, a no, new no, thing. No, Huh? No, I just laughed. I was, I just couldn't do it. And, um, and then we just sort of, People, people approached me, people approached other folks who'd quit, and um, there, we got some funding for a couple of years. This group, Civil Media, which is a, a, a blockchain technology company that was um, wanted to give us some money and help kind of a proof of concept support there. And ideally, they wanted to prove this blockchain technology can be used beyond Bitcoin finance money stuff and it could actually be used to support journalism and support banking and support libraries and support all these different real estate deals and you know like all these different avenues beyond data mining and bitcoin bro whatever business that is and so the idea was that they they wanted to sort of prove this concept and show that journalism is uh you know blockchain could be a, a support for journalism but you know it's a short-term funding scenario and we're reliant on uh on subscriptions and we're really close to being self-sufficient right now five dollars a month from people signing up which is pretty cool it's comforting to know that people are coming around to the idea that if you want like some really good news and quality journalism you actually got to pay for it just the same way you pay for your you know cable tv or your hulu or your netflix it costs a little bit not much five bucks a month but it's uh it's enough to keep you know 10 journalists out there churning out the stories that everybody wants to read it's funny one of the things i also wanted to talk to you about which i'm sort of embarrassed to say i had not i have not been thinking about this issue very hard in the past but I'm hearing a bit more talk about this, and I just wanted to get your opinion on it. You know, you broke this story uh, about Backcountry.com on October 31st. This thing kind of took off. And, you know, this kind of thing, I mean, there's, if you think about big national newspapers and 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 national TV shows and the like, these folks, there's a lot of them. A lot of different outlets all tripping over themselves to like break stories, especially say in the world of politics or whatever. And I've just been thinking more about the entities that break stories, right? And those are the entities where they have ponied up the time and the money and the energy to go do the background research to get this story. A story comes out and then we see, literally within minutes, another outlet effectively rewriting that story and sort of keeping it on their own platform. And I frankly, the part that I'm kind of embarrassed about is I just haven't thought that much about how damaging that can really be. You know, we're at the Colorado Sun, we do not have advertising, so we do not worry about clicks. It's not something 
we're you know we're we're focused on producing good journalism not harvesting clicks and you know other business models rely on those clicks and that's understandable it's just the way it is so if they get a hot story they want that click um you know one of the things we do is we give away all our content for free to anyone who prints it doesn't matter if you have a newspaper take it away it's yours um you know say say it's from the colorado sun obviously um but when you go online we would like you to direct back to us but yeah you know this is this industry is in flux and we're trying to figure out a way to make money and you know stay afloat and you know sometimes it's clicks sometimes it's you know stealing stories and not acknowledging it and that's that's sad um but you know this industry we are trying to figure out a way to keep it around and no one i think has has the right model yet but you know one thing that I could say about me is that I'm on the ground. I'm, you know, at your ski hill. I'm hanging out. I'm, you know, a, a ski bum. I, I rock climb. I kayak. I paddleboard. I do everything I can. And, you know, I'm sort of out there in this industry. Been going to OR forever and ever. Just walking around, hugging my friends in the hallways. And, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm, you know, part of the community in many ways. Um, so that that's something that, you know, maybe someone who parachutes in from you know, one of the major papers doesn't have that sort of street cred or something, but you know, it's really just a matter of putting in the time, being a part of the community, living in the community, being, you know, the, the dude you see dropping off the kids, you know, soccer and dance and climbing gym and everything. So I'm just one of the, one of our own in terms of the outdoor community. So try to just accurately reflect those stories. And it's, as we try to figure out journalism, I really think that the idea of the community journalist and the person on the ground out in your, out in your hood and doing the same things you're doing is going to be key to keeping these stories out there and front and center. And that's the idea. Um, I just want to, you know, I want to keep writing these stories and said it before, but if you, uh, you know, you don't have to support us, but you may not know we're there, but you're really going to miss us if we go away. (laughs) It's just going to be not pretty if, you lose your local community journalists. Um, you really need those folks around to keep keep the stories right, keep people in the right light, and make sure that these stories that might get swept under the rug get told. Well, Jason, listen, thank you again for your work on this story. As you've already said, there there's going to be a follow-through and an update on this Uh it's also cool to hear about what you've been doing at the Colorado Sun, and we wish you guys well over on that front. And uh, if you guys haven't already, go check out coloradosun.com. And I'm all I'm available to everyone at jason at coloradosun.com too. So reach out, share your thoughts. And Jonathan, it's been a great chat. I'm a huge fan of Blister. Well, thank you. And uh, hopefully we helped you uh, line up with some good gear that you can go enjoy tomorrow as you go yeah, skiing. There you go. Yeah, man. Busting out the new sweet helmet tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. We, we, we have a, a helmet in common, I guess. Um, yeah, there you go. We'll see what you think, but I, I'm a fan of my sweet trooper. So anyway, man, good to talk. I'll let you get going and uh, good luck with everything. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Jonathan. All right. Appreciate it. Take care. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks to Jason for the conversation. Thanks to Luke Alley for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. Now, please take good care out there, and we will talk to you again next week.